Now, I, um, I don't know how you are on buying presents for people. Um, if you have anybody who it's an absolute nightmare to buy presents for. I have to confess, uh, as I got older, buying a present for my mum was one of the most difficult tasks I ever had. Um, and I was absolutely delighted that when I got married, Caroline took on that responsibility. So I no longer have to do that. And she's very creative. That. Of course, I now have to buy presents for Caroline. And that can be equally tricky at times, although we do do present lists. Um, and we're just moving over to an app for it as well. So um, high tech stuff. Um, uh, Caroline produces the list, but I'm told that I I'm, can't just buy from the list. I have to buy something to surprise her as well. I have suggested that nothing would be a surprise, but that's not been well received. Um, and I haven't dared do it, I have to add. I wonder if you've ever been given a present that um, really wasn't quite for you. Let me show you one I got. It's this. So uh, we got given this uh, at Christmas, uh, and we tried it for a bit, but I have to say, Neither of us really liked the coffee it made. So frankly, it's not the best gift for us. And actually, we've taken it out of the kitchen. It's back in the box. We're no longer using it. But we're thinking about gifts. And that's what our topic for this evening is in our series on living sacrifices. We're thinking about a giver of gifts who knows exactly what is right for us, exactly what we need that will benefit us and others. A giver who also will know, unlike my brother, hopefully, if we're using the gift or gifts that we've been given. Um, the reading we had was uh, the first 11 verses. And I know we looked at some of those verses last week. I wasn't here last week, more of that later. Um, but I've chosen to look at the whole passage because there is a wholeness to it. So please forgive me if I'm covering old ground. I do hope I'm not contradicting anything that was said uh, last week. But at the start of the chapter, Paul uses his standard formula to let his readers know that he's changing the subject. Now, about the gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, he goes. Now, actually, in verse 1, where he says it's translate gifts of the Spirit, literally, it is spiritual matters or things. But in verse 4, we see the use of the Greek word charisma, which lets us know that he's talking about spiritual or grace gifts. The Corinthian church had lots of problems. The church was filled with division, arguments, lawsuits, and immorality. On top of that, there was confusion about marriage, about food sacrificed to idols, worship, the Lord's Supper, the resurrection, giving, and spiritual gifts. Some people thought that some spiritual gifts were more important than others because they'd been given the more supernatural and in their minds, the more spectacular gifts. And here in chapter 12, Paul begins to address the issue. Paul recognises what the past experience of the Corinthian believers might have been like before they turned to Christ. And whilst they might feel that there are similarities, he makes it clear that there is a very obvious distinction between their past and their present. Now, we might find it really difficult to conceive of anyone in the context of a Christian gathering or Christian worship saying something like, <clears throat> Jesus, be cursed. But we're talking about a group of believers in Corinth 
many of whom would have been young and immature in their faith, whose previous spiritual experiences may well have been participating in pagan ceremonies or idol worship, where some of those participating might well have been driven into some sort of spiritual ecstasy and utterances. Paul is making it clear that that cannot happen if it is God's spirit at work and speaking through someone. It's a sure way of distinguishing true from false. The spirit of God would never lead anyone to speak of Jesus in this way. The spirit's ministry is to exalt Jesus, to lead people to say that Jesus is Lord, not just with their lips, but through the transformation of their hearts, minds, and very lives. And we've had a lovely example of that this evening. <clears throat> the past experience of the Corinthian the past experience of the Corinthian temples focused on mute idols who could not respond, and they promoted the cult of self. For the followers of Christ, it's the worship of a living God who empowers believers with his life-changing spirit and promotes the well-being of others. Saying Jesus is Lord would also have been a direct rebuttal of the expectations of a Roman colony such as Corinth where the expected refrain would have been Caesar is Lord. So to contradict this was significant, not just spiritually, but also socially and politically. It's against counterfeit and spurious faith, and particularly with regard to the use of spiritual grace gifts that Paul is warning the Corinthians. The strong message <clears throat> that we get throughout is that one gift is not to be more highly esteemed than another. Nor by association are the recipients and users of some gifts to think of themselves or behave as if they were more important or spiritual than others. This was the problem in Corinth. Some of the gifts and their users were being given greater regard and prominence and elevated above other gifts and their users. And it's to this that Paul turns in verses 4 to 7. Like a good orator, Paul emphasises his point here by repeating it in three parallel ways. He speaks of the same spirit in verse 4, the same Lord in verse 5, and the same God in verse 6. Clearly, as David Jackman expresses it in his study on 1 Corinthians, and I quote, these are not three different deity, deities working in three different ways, but the persons of the Godhead in perfect unity, providing for us a perfect model of unity in functional diversity. Let me repeat that last bit. A perfect model of unity in functional diversity. If ever there was a challenge to the church in this matter, then that sums it up. Also, it's not a case of, do I want to exercise my spiritual gift, but of how does the body need me to use my gift? The work of the Holy Spirit in our lives is supposed to be transformational, but his work through us does not in any way make us special. Peter and John make this clear after the healing of the man, the beautiful gate, and we read in Acts 3, verse 12, why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness, we had made this man walk. 
And just as Peter is quick to attribute the miraculous to God and his power, so too must we. Having and using a spiritual gift is not a sign of spiritual maturity. They're intended to help us on our journey to spiritual maturity. And possessing them doesn't offer any kind of shortcut to that maturity. A better litmus test of maturity might be the measure to which our gifts are used to build up the body of Christ and for the common good. In fact, the very best evidence of our becoming more like Christ, of our growth as a disciple, and our progress towards any kind of spiritual maturity is not what gift we've been given, nor how well we use it to benefit others. No, the best evidence is described by Paul in his letter to the Galatians. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, patience, forbearance, peace, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So is this passage in Corinthians just Paul having a go at the believers in Corinth and him speaking into the context of what was going on amongst the church there? Not at all. We find there's a consistent message in Scripture. We read in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 4, verse 12, Christ gave different gifts to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Peter's first letter, chapter 4, verse 10. Each of you should use whatever gift you've received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. Then Paul writing to the Romans, uh, chapter 1, verses 11 to 12. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. One of the best definitions of spiritual gifts that I've found comes from a a guy called Bruce Bugby, one of the creators of the Network course, which you may have heard of, that's designed to help people work out their own gifts. Uh, We've used this tool in the past here in Highfield, and whilst not perfect, and no tool is, it does try to address lots of the things that contribute to our unique gifting. Reading in his book, What Do You Do Best in the Body of Christ?, He defines spiritual gifts, or gives a definition of spiritual gifts, in this way. Spiritual gifts are divine abilities distributed by the Holy Spirit to every believer according to God's design and grace for the common good of the body of Christ. Spiritual gifts are given by the Holy Spirit, and they are given to every believer in Jesus. Nobody who has faith in Jesus can ever say they are not gifted because they, you, me, we are. The gifts aren't given to us to become popular or for us to stand out in any way. They're given for the common good of the body of believers, the church. And it's no mistake that Paul's analogy of the body and the mutual need and interdependence of all its parts is applied to the body of Christ, the church, you and me. The NRV heads the next section of 1 Corinthians 12, uh, from verse 12 onwards, with the words unity and diversity in the body. And whilst we often use this passage to talk about our relationships within the church, I don't for one moment believe that Paul just happened to put it in at this particular point in his letter by mistake. 
He's emphasizing our mutual need and interdependence when it comes to spiritual gifts, as well as any wider application we might wish to make. So let's think about the gifts. In verses 8 to 10, Paul gives us a list of some of the different ways in which the Holy Spirit gifts us. That's by no means a definitive list, and we'll find other gifts listed later on in the chapter, and also in Paul's letter to uh, the Romans, to the Ephesians, and also in Peter's first letter. If you go online and Google list of spiritual gifts, you'll get a range of responses with some variety, although the core, the majority, remains the same. I found the list that was produced by, uh, as part of the network course very helpful. And if you want to see that list, I've included it with the midweek teaching notes uh, for week three of our devoted course. And you can access it on the, access it on the church website at www.highfield.org forward slash devoted resources. I will add that I, I um, realized this morning that I put up the list and I managed to miss one off. Um, so if you've downloaded it before... Um, about uh, three o'clock this afternoon, um, the gift of knowledge was missing. Interesting. Um, uh, they, they, I have updated it now. But it, I also found it really interesting because that's the one gift I want to highlight and talk about in a moment. So maybe God was uh, saying something to me. So how do we distinguish between our natural talents and our spiritual gifts? Aren't they the same? Well, whilst our natural talents might be an indicator to our giftedness, they are not the same. Our natural talents are given at our physical birth and are part of our uniqueness as a creation of God. Our spiritual gifts are given at our spiritual birth and enable us to make a unique contribution to God's kingdom. Now, natural talents may be transformed by the Holy Spirit and empowered as spiritual gifts, And there's no rule to this. Just because I might be an outstanding classroom teacher, I'd like to think I was, but many, many years ago, um, it doesn't mean that I have the spiritual gift of teaching. Indeed, having worked with teachers over the years and been one myself, I've encountered many who are absolutely amazing in a class with a class of 30 uh, children, but are terrified at the thought of speaking to their colleagues, almost incapable of doing so, let alone standing up in church and preaching. Whether they be natural talents or spiritual gifts, they both come from God, and we have a responsibility to identify them, develop them, and use them to the glory of God. So what are we to do? So why do we need to understand, or as the message version puts it, be informed and knowledgeable about spiritual gifts. Understanding about spiritual gifts and accepting and using them will be a blessing to us personally, to the church corporately, and to the world generally. Paul makes it clear in no uncertain terms that we are not to be uninformed or ignorant. We should be knowledgeable. It's almost couched as a command to us. He writes extensively and explicitly about spiritual gifts here in 1 Corinthians and elsewhere in the New Testament. He's echoed by Peter in his first letter. And to remain ignorant is to ignore Scripture. So we shouldn't be uninformed. 
Secondly, we, should, we are expected to use them. Paul, when writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4 verse 14, says, Do not neglect your gift which was given you. To write in such a way would imply that there were those who were not using their gift or not using it in the way that it was intended to be used. And as we read on in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul makes it very clear that our diversity of gifting is built upon a mutual dependence. Now, I spent last weekend in Derbyshire with all the discipleship year students from across the country. Thank you, Joe. There's a wave there, and Serene's there as well somewhere, I think. Give us a wave. Thank you. <laughs> um, and it, just a quick plug for the discipleship year. If you're wondering what God's calling you to next year, um, why not explore the discipleship year? I know Joe and Serene would love to tell you about it. It is a really exciting opportunity. Uh, to find out more about is God calling you to some kind of full-time ministry or just to spend a, a year growing in your own walk of faith. Enough of an advert. But I spent last uh, weekend with the uh, DY students from across the country. Um, and our speakers got us to complete a survey called the Fivefold Ministry, an exercise I recall also doing on a church weekend a few years ago. Uh, whilst not the most scientific of processes, it enabled us to rank our preferences for five ministries or gifts. Evangelists, teachers, prophets, apostles, and pastors. We were then asked to divide into a group which was based on our top preference. Some were surprised. Some simply had what they already knew confirmed to them. Probably the most interesting part of the exercise was when we were asked what we thought the church would be like if it was made up just of people with our particular preference. The pastors, incidentally the biggest group, uh, quickly realised they needed to be able to do more than just care for people. There were similar realisations for the other ministry areas. It quickly became apparent that we need one another and the gifts that we all bring. So we're not to be uninformed, we're expected to use them. And thirdly, we're stewards who will be held accountable for the use of our gifts. Uh, Peter wrote, and I've already read it once, but I'll read it again. Each of you should use whatever gift you've received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. Spiritual gifts are literally grace gifts. They represent a small part of the grace that we've received from God. And it's our responsibility to wisely manage or be stewards of this grace. God created us to be both in relationship with him and one another. And in meeting the needs of others, we also find the satisfaction of being connected with them. Our grace gifts aren't given us uh, for us to keep them to ourselves, but to be used to further God's kingdom in the world today. Jesus tells the story in Matthew 25, the man who's going on a journey and entrusted his money to his servants according to their ability. Five, two, and one bags of gold were distributed. Five bags produced a further five bags. Two bags produced a further two bags. But the one bag saw no return, not even interest from a bank deposit. The master had words of congratulation for the first two servants and of condemnation for the servant who did nothing with that which was entrusted to him. That parable of the talents 
emphasizes the point that God expects a return on his investment and someday we will be held accountable. So I've talked a lot about spiritual gifts. So how do I find out what my spiritual gift or gifts are? How can we discover that? Well, there are a number of online tools or surveys that are available. Uh, and indeed, I've mentioned a couple of them uh, in the midweek teaching notes uh, for this week. They can be helpful, but please don't just use them in isolation. Put them in the context, I would suggest, of the following guidelines. First of all, know what the gifts are. If we're trying to recognise them in our lives, then we need to know what they are. And I've already mentioned where we can find lists of them in Scripture and a list that we've made available. So no, pray about it. We should go to God in prayer and ask him what our gifts are and remain open to him. And maybe tonight is an opportunity to do that. As Paul tells us in verse 11, it is God the Holy Spirit who chooses our gifts. So ask him to reveal them to us. We should serve as well. Please don't sit back with a view that I can't get involved in volunteering for anything in church because God hasn't shown me what my gift is. And I don't want to be doing something that turns out to be the wrong thing. We shouldn't be waiting for God to tell us what our gifts are before we begin serving him in ministry. As we get more involved, patterns will emerge that may well help us to discover what our gifts are. So know, pray, serve, and ask. Ask others. Talk to other believers who know you well. Ask them what they think your gifts are. It's hard to imagine God giving us gifts that no one else recognises but us. And finally, desire. We should ask ourselves, what do I desire to do? What do I want to do? What do I delight in doing for Christ? What am I passionate about in relation to fellow believers? God has given us these passions and desires, and they're often another clue as to what our gifts may be. Now, I'm not going to go through and spend a lot of time talking about the, um, the more spectacular or supernatural gifts. Uh, you could have a whole sermon series on those. Um, but what I want to do want to do is to talk about one reaction to them and then one example. Uh, many of us by nature are used to being able to explain things and to be in control. So when God works in supernatural ways, which can be beyond our human understanding, we can feel unsettled and a little nervous about what is going on. And that was certainly my experience as a 15-year-old, just a few years ago for me, um, uh, when I went away on a youth weekend. Reflecting on that time, one of the key things was that I knew absolutely nothing about the work of the Holy Spirit. So what was going on was not only out of my somewhat limited comfort zone, but I really didn't have a clue what was happening because nobody had ever told me or taught me. As I thought more about this, I realised that I did trust those who were the leaders at the time. And whilst I wasn't completely at ease, I was able to rest in the knowledge that those in charge were people I not only trusted, but I respected for their own spiritual maturity. Since then, I've come to realise that the Holy Spirit is well-named as helper, comforter, 
And as the message translation puts it in John 14, friend. Jesus' baptism, the Spirit of God descends on him like a dove. And that's an image of peace and calm. The Holy Spirit is not someone we should be afraid of or nervous about. One of the things we often do before a service is we pray together and we are open to God giving us perhaps a picture or a word of knowledge, something that he might want to say uh, to the congregation, might want to say to congregation at large or to individuals within that. And you may well be aware of or experience sometimes when we pray for individuals, uh, we're open to God. Maybe he's got something he wants to say to that individual through us. That's something we call a word of knowledge. It might be something that comes to mind. It might be a picture. It might be a verse of scripture. Um, These are things that um, we'll often ask God to reveal to us. When it happens, could it just be someone who's really got good insight, perhaps knows what's going on, knows an individual's situation, knows that person really well, and surmises what they want prayer about? Maybe, although I've been around people sharing such words and pictures often enough to believe that it is God intervening supernaturally. Surely, what is most important is that the person receiving the picture, word, um, scripture verse is built up, that the result is that they're encouraged in their journey of faith, that they grow as a disciple and bear fruit. And incidentally, and some of you will uh, get this, a byproduct of me receiving a word or picture, and it's not something that happens that regularly to me, or being with someone exercising that gift, that encourages me and strengthens me uh, in my walk as a disciple. The exercise of spiritual gifts, whether supernatural or not, is about serving one another, about encouraging one another, about caring for one another. That message and theme runs throughout Scripture and whenever we read about the use of spiritual gifts. So what about us? If I was to ask uh, each one of us gathered here this evening about our own spiritual gifts, I think there would be some, maybe many, who'd probably be able to articulate what we believe them to be. It may be that as the seasons of our life change, so the ways in which God gifts us change. However sure of our gifts we are, however long we might have been using them, the challenge for us is the same as that for all of God's gifted family, which is to ensure that we're making every effort to use them to enrich the life of the body of Christ. Often we can see something in others that they struggle to see in themselves. So might I also suggest that we have a part to play in helping others to recognize their gifts and to give them opportunities to use them and to develop them. A word of encouragement, thanks, or appreciation to someone about something they said or done could help in that journey of self-discovery and awareness of the Spirit's gifting. Do you recognize the gifts that God has given to others? Do you thank them for what they bring to the body of Christ? Do you encourage them in their use of their gifts so that they feel valued built up and keen to keep using their gifts. Whilst we continue to use our own gifts for the common good, 
may we actively encourage others to recognize the Spirit's gifting, to grasp opportunities to use their gifts, and to be expectant that God will move and be at work amongst us. As I finish, just uh, maybe some cautionary words, and that's what I've entitled them uh, on my notes. Finally, and most importantly, and please hear me on this, at no point do I think that spiritual gifts run counter to the word of God. Paul had to correct the Corinthians who'd gone off course and seemed to be placing an overemphasis on the experiential. Now, in truth, there have been times when churches have been guilty of doing just that. What we're trying to achieve is the right balance where the word of God is the rule book, the foundation, the ultimate authority. But we desire and seek God to move amongst us in different ways. Just as there, were counterfeit and, uh, there was the counterfeit and spurious in Corinth, and against which Paul is warning the church, we've experienced the same throughout history. If we argue about the existence of spiritual gifts, who wins? If we suspect the genuineness of their use, who wins? If we choose to believe that some have died out and are no longer required, which I personally don't believe, and argue with one another about it, who wins? If we elevate some gifts to a place of prominence at the expense of others, who wins? If we place on a pedestal the users of some gifts rather than others, who wins? I could go on, but you get the point. The only winner when the church argues is not God and his people, but the deceiver, Satan, who longs to stop us being active and effective. When we recognize the gifts that we've been given, when we use them as they're supposed to be used, then not only do we honor God, but we honor his people as well. There's also a sense of fulfillment and immense satisfaction in doing what God designed and gifted us to do. Amen. Thank you.